we are in the midst of an election. And by that, I don't just mean a presidential election. In fact, every listener here will have significantly more impact on what happens to city council, what happens to the state legislature, what happens to statewide races, including the second highest constitutional position in this state, which is secretary of state. You will have more impact on those races than you ever will on a presidential campaign. One of the major candidates for Secretary of State is with us this morning. His name is Mark Hass. He represents Washington County in the state Senate, and he's with us now. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jefferson. Who are you and why are you running? My name is Mark Hass. I'm a state senator. I've been in the legislature for 18 years. Uh, I'm running for the same reason I originally got into public service, that um, when you grow up in Oregon, you're instilled with certain values. You take care of the land, you take care of people, you take care of the environment, and you certainly take care of schools. Well, I left for a while, but when I came back, I was a journalist at uh, KATU, and all during the 90s while I was reporting on horse fires and courts and trials and all the things that journalists report on, I also uh, became a keen observer of what was going on with Oregon, and it was growing so fast, and some of those values that I grew up with, and a lot of others did too, seemed to be eroding. And then we had those property tax cuts in the 90s that that uh, put a death knell onto schools. And so I ran in the legislature, I got there in 2001, and that all culminated, uh, I guess my quest to help schools uh, occurred just last year with the passage of the Student Success Act, which will raise more than a billion dollars uh, a year for uh, education to do things like uh, shrink class sizes. And so uh, that felt like a pretty good capstone to a legislative career. That bill kind of, in my mind, righted the ship from what happened back in the 1990s. It was it's going to be the largest infusion of money to Oregon schools in the history of our state. And I'm very, very proud of that. And so, it, like I said, it felt like a capstone. And while I was in the legislature, I had a opportunity to kind of specialize in the very quirky constitutional responsibilities of the Secretary of State, namely elections, redistricting, and auditing. And so I feel very qualified to take this next step, and I'm having a great time meeting people in this campaign, and I'm looking for people who want to engage on these issues. I have six or seven different proposals to uh, enhance this office. Jefferson, we've had four secretaries of state in the last four years, and this office has been diminished. They're all, those four are all good people, but if you're just going to be a, a caretaker and, re, and, and fill out the last 14 months of somebody's term, you're not going to bring the same kind of long-term focus or long-term planning or energy that I will. So that's why I'm running. So let's pick up on one of those you said. I heard you say redistricting. I remember I remember it was pretty vivid. Uh, having a conversation with former Secretary of State and former Governor Barbara Roberts, she said that appointing Phil Keesling to become Secretary of State was, and I'm quoting, the worst mistake she made as governor, end quote. And her view was because of the path, included the path that Phil took on redistricting. And that in her view, he did, well, I don't, I don't want to put any further words in her mouth. There are critiques of Phil Kiesling and how he redistricted in 2010. There are supporters of, your, of yours who might appreciate your bipartisan take as a legislator. How would you approach redistricting? And what would you say to voters in the Democratic primary who are ner- nervous that you would draw lines that wouldn't maintain Democratic control of the legislature? 
Well, I would say, first of all, uh, the Secretary of State who did redistricting in 2001, which is my first year, and that year left an indelible imprint, is Bill Bradbury. The legislature couldn't do it. In fact, Democrats prevented a gerrymandering scheme from going through. And Bill Bradbury stepped up and put through a plan that um, stayed into law. And in 2004, Democrats recaptured the state house. In 2006, Democrats recaptured the legislature. And Bill Bradbury is helping me in my campaign. He's he's endorsing me. I've known him for many, many years, long before I got in the legislature. And he's just a terrific guy. So that would be the first one. But it did leave an indelible impression on me. It was my first term. And uh, had the Democrats uh, not prevented that that plan from going through in 2001, Oregon would be like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Texas, with these plans that uh, were challenged in court and knocked around in courts for literally decades. Um, so that that put redistricting on my mental radar. But this time you're not so going to be blocking a bad Republican plan. This point, no. you're, you're either not going to have to mess with it because it'll get done before you, right? And if I got the year wrong before, it would have been 1990 when Keesling did it, right? Uh, and then you, I you guess so. yeah. or 1991, and then 2011 well, was when uh, was when it happened when I was in legislature. Chris Garrett and others right. wrote the plan, and but the, it legisla- might not- the legislature got the job done, so the Secretary of State didn't have to. Yeah, so it'd probably be That's you. Right. You'd probably be either you facing. Yes. It'd probably be you either facing a plan that just got done and you didn't have to mess with it. That's the position Kate was in uh, nine years ago. Kate Brown was in nine years ago. Or uh, it, if the Republicans were able to pick up a chamber, uh, you'd end up having to break the tie and you'd write a plan. Uh, what would be... I'm already, I'm already looking at it. I mean, it's, it's likely Oregon's going to get a sixth congressional seat. Yeah. And that's going to really alter the congressional lines out there. And already people in these congressional offices are already... Um, you know, planning and scheming and talking about, you know, what would you do to the DeFazio district? How would this <laughs> Boy, affect the What would you do to the DeFazio district? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that gives you, you know, most Oregonians, uh, this is such an obscure thing to most people, but it's really very, very critical. And politicos and both sides, all sides, are, are really keenly uh, interested in doing this. For my mind, I want to do something that doesn't screw over the Democrats, but is, but is fair. And um, I think that's what we need. And I understand the law with uh, communities of interest, transportation corridors and geography. There's certain criteria we have to follow. And I think you need someone who um, is going to withstand the pressure from every corner of the state and come through with a plan that is fair. A fair plan that doesn't uh, have any salamander shaped districts. That's right. I I don't know that you're going to answer this question, but I want to ask it anyway. Because I know a lot of people do really care about the composition of the United States Congress. I am one of them. And I also recognize that if we're in a state, and one of my concerns about Obama's push about redistricting reform and his attorney general's, former attorney general's push on redistricting reform, is that if it's only Democratic states who listen to them. And in the current world, that one could imagine only Democratic states might listen to Eric Holder. And, and Democratic states become... Uh, redistricted by commissions, etc. But red states become gerrymandered even worse, and purplish states get gerrymandered red, that you have a Congress that's even less representative of the American population than the one we have now. Where you have, as we have right now, a situation where in every single congressional election for a while, the Democratic candidates 
in total have had substantially more votes than the Republicans, but in all but the last one, the Republicans still controlled the legislature. And I say this also as a small D Democrat and also care about a process that makes democracy work. How do you feel about the proposal supported by League of Women Voters and others to move to a commission to resolve uh, redistricting? Well, I've been looking at those models of commission redistricting ideas and concepts uh, for many years. And I think there are some out there that, uh, you know, that could work. But right now, uh, the Constitution says the legislature shall do it. And in 2011, I worked hard on that plan, and, it, and the legislature did do it. Uh, it was a bipartisan redistricting plan. It passed. And so, number one, I would say uh, Oregon doesn't have any gerrymandering seats. There's no problems, nothing that anybody can point to and say, see, this is bad. I mean, we've just never had that, at least not in the last 20 years. And so that's number one. I don't see the problem that we're trying to fix. And number two, when I look at the specifics of this plan, uh, it looks pretty complicated in terms of who would be on it. You can't have a history in politics. And um, and I don't see an accountability for these commission members if something goes wrong. And all of that language would go into the Oregon Constitution, all of that clunky language. So uh, I'm not on board. Um, maybe down the road we can, we can look at a, at a commission structure, of, you know, at, see how 2021 goes. But right now I'm sticking with what we have in the Constitution because uh, we don't have any problems that require uh, attention. Of all of the things out there that we do need to fix, I wouldn't put this in the top ten. Uh, One of the things I would put in the top ten I'm announcing today, and that's creating a new elections cybersecurity office within the Secretary of State to get at this uh, disturbing problem of disinformation that's, that has obviously crept up in our country, but it also crept up in Oregon in, in 2018. And I think uh, the next Secretary of State needs to get out in front of that problem um, for all kinds of obvious reasons. But in 2018, we had uh, social media posts that said, in one case, uh, people were posting that uh, ballots uh, – were already being counted in Morrow County, and they weren't. Another one said it's too late to send your uh, ballots in, and it wasn't. And the Secretary of State's office had no capacity to uh, turn those uh, disinformation campaigns around. They had a couple people working the phones in the office in Salem, which is like two people in the backyard trying to put out a, a forest fire. What so would need to, to get in front of this? What would an election cybersecurity outfit within the Secretary of State's office look like and do? And let me preface it with this. One of the challenges it has seemed to me in policing elections is that the real ne'er-do-well kind of stuff happens towards the very end of the election. And then after the election, you go through some sort of administrative process or a court process, and it seems like either the administrative process or the court process is loath to disrupt the result of the election. How does how do you actually imagine that working? I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, uh, well, that's a good point on those things. But I think if you get out in front of it, you set up like your own sort of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, truth squad. You have uh, websites and your own social media posts that say, here's what's real. And you tell people, if you see something, you go here and here's when the ballots are out. Here's here's when um, votes are being counted. And uh, this rumor is not true. And this is the, the real place. And it's really necessary now, Jefferson, because of the sort of downward spiral in mainstream journalism. There are fewer and fewer reporters and news outlets that are uh, reporting on on what is true and, and what is not. And so in the absence of that that uh, journalism, uh, you see these disinformation campaigns popping up, creating all kinds of problems. And I just think we have to get out in front of that 
and be proactive and say, folks, here's where you need to go if you want the truth about what's really happening in the elections. When you were at KTU, describe the difference or even prior to that, like go to the previous century, which wasn't that long ago. But when you were <laughs> when, when you were a journalist, compare what the basement of the Capitol building was like and there were the denizens of that floor dwelled where journalists had offices. Compare what that was like then compared to what it's like now. Yes, that's right. Whenever I would go down to the Capitol, it was overwhelming in the press room. In fact, during the time I was in the news, I think they expanded it to to, to house more and more people. But um, all of the, the print uh, out publications had three or four people down there. TV stations all had an office, and uh, it was a bustling activity. So you'd and go I down there, there'd be a bunch of would... energy, a bunch of people writing, getting ready to write, getting ready to go on TV. Yeah, yeah, the Oregonian. I think they had a reporter for the House, one for the Senate, one for the governor, one covering all of state agencies. And, you know, it was like a, a, a platoon system down there. And I always felt outgunned by, by these guys. But and if you, if, you, if, you had, if you had a press release, if you had a press release, you would have to take a whole bunch of copies and you give everybody a copy of that press release. And you knew that that press release was going to get attention. That's right. And that was before the... Uh, Internet really fired up, and it was before we had a thousand cable stations. And those two forces have sucked most of the red revenue out of uh, local media, TV stations, and print. And uh, it's just never really come back. And, and so, so, what does it look the like there now? Just des- now? Yeah, describe the basement now as compared to before. You go down there; it's bustling. There's folks write, writing. I imagine them typing on loud keyboards, but I'm sure they had computers then. And and compare that scene to when you're feeling outgunned because everybody's got you know multiple reporters. Compare that scene to when you go down there now. There's two or three people. Yeah, uh, you have public radio guy and a couple people who. who who are up from uh, downstate or just make their uh, office there. Um, but we're in a whole new era now. And um, I think a lot of uh, politicos and candidates just bypass the press. It's like, hey, thanks, but I'm just going to go on my own news feed and go and, and Twitter. And I don't really need to bother with you anymore. Not, nothing personal, but you just don't have the listenership or the viewership or the readership anymore. Um, but as a trained journalist, I, not a day goes by that I don't worry about journalism. And, um, I just, I just hope we can somehow turn that around. Uh, I've subscribed to several papers that I don't really, uh, look at very often just because I want to just support reporters and, and, and journalism. And I hope we get back to a day where we have, uh, the hustling, bustling basement in the Capitol press room, but also in, in the, uh, in the city councils of, of all of our, our cities and towns and the local news, you know, Beaverton, for example, out near where I live, uh, is a pretty big suburb. I mean, they have a giant budget. I think it's five or six hundred million dollars. And there's no press coverage there anymore. At a time when, you know, city councilors might be might have a brother in law who owns the property where they may or may not build a highway exchange. You know, you need that watchdog journalism. And it really saddens me and it troubles me that we don't have what we used to have. And how would you then fashion this office? Say more about how you would fashion the cybersecurity office in such a way, because it wouldn't be a newspaper. Uh, how would you make sure that information got to people if what it did was, uh, was published information? Or how would it enforce rules? And how would you make sure that's being done not to benefit a political power operation, but instead or primarily to promote truth? 
I, that's a good question. I, uh, I, it wouldn't be done to promote anybody. It would be uh, a, a website or Facebook post or a combination to simply state facts about the election. Here's where you vote. Here's where it. Very basic information, and it would fight against rumors. And, and that's the question. How do you fight against the, the rumors? That's my question. How, how do you what do you imagine the tools being to and or maybe you create this thing and you ask that thing to figure out how to do it. But what are your initial hypotheses of how to fight against false rumors and fake news? Well, if you see something, the, the ballots are already being counted in Morrow County. Um, you you make sure that you get out there and say, not true. Ballots will be counted at 8 p.m. on election night. And I think just a reliable source. This is like, um, well, what does dad say about this? And you go to dad and dad says, no, it's not true. How do you you make sure that when you say you're going to let people know, how do you make sure that they do know? For example, one possibility that might scare people but would be that if you're going to have attachment to the Internet in Oregon – you have to be on the Secretary of State's wavelength. So when the Secretary of State sends out a message, you get it whether you want it or not. Now, that might scare people, but that that would be one thing that you might actually need to do to be sure that people heard. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think there's there's a variety of, of different ways. And by the way, this is not, you know, a, a new brilliant thought of mine. This is uh, Finland is, is doing this. A lot of countries... Um, have been dealing with misinformation and disinformation campaigns for a long time before us. And so um, there, unfortunately, is developing this cottage industry of security experts and security methods to uh, get out in front of this, which I think is the only way to get there. If you if you wait until after afterwards and you try to do it, as you mentioned, Jefferson, after the election, it's too late. So I just think we need to be proactive uh, the Secretary of State's office does have this thing known as a civics uh, toolkit that engages young people, and I would build on that as well. Um, but uh, we need to get out in front of this. It is much more troublesome, at least to me, than something like uh, commissions on redistricting. This is important, and I think the Secretary of State should lead the way in this, this new age, this new reality that we're in. The other major candidates in the Democratic primary, Jamie McLeod Skinner, who ran for Congress in the previous election in Eastern Oregon, and Jennifer Williamson, uh, recently stepped aside state representative. How do you primarily differentiate yourself from those other candidates? Well, uh, two ways. One, uh, I think I've got uh, much, much more experience and deeper experience than any of the candidates. Uh, and not only that, in my experience, I have had some major accomplishments of which I'm very proud. Moving to full day kindergarten from half day is now paying off dividends. And that was a hard bill to get through. I think you were down there, Jefferson, when we finally got it through. And then importantly, finally got the money to pay for it. The Oregon Promise, which provides free community college to Oregon high school graduates, has been a game changer in this state for thousands and thousands of families we got about 10,000 kids in community colleges now every year. This is our fifth year, and more than a third of them are first-time going-to-college families. They come from families that have never experienced college culture. And finally, the Student Success Act that passed in 2019, I think, was a generational uh, measure that came through and, uh, like I say, righted the ship from what happened in the 1990s. So I think my difference is I've got experience to get the job done, and if you want to gauge how someone will perform in the future, I think you should look at how they performed in the past. 
So that's one differentiation. The other one is I'm the only candidate that's talking about ideas and proposals such as cybersecurity, um, ranked choice voting, same-day registration, um, an ombudsman for child care, foster care, um, addiction services audit. So I've got seven or eight um, ideas and proposals that are very significant that would overhaul this office and restore it to some prominence and, and make some changes. And no one else is doing that, and it's very important to me that I'm the candidate that has these policy ideas, win, lose, or draw, I think these policy ideas are what this campaign should be about. And, and you could, you know, disagree if you don't like ranked choice voting or, or whatever. That's good. But I think that's what we should be campaigning on. And that's what I hope this race is decided on, as opposed to who has uh, who's raised the most money and who's, you know, uh, going to win this uh, beauty contest and, and all of those uh, other uh, factors that are really not relevant to the requirements of this office. A week A week from today... You are going to be muzzled in your ability to raise money for a month. Uh, Jennifer Williamson resigned from the legislatures to avoid that muzzle. Uh, the other major candidate has, is, is not in public office and has no problem. What are the, I, I'm guessing that you must have at least considered whether or not that was a good idea for you to do that. Comment on on that and why you decided to stick with it and what, if any advantage you think that gives one way or the other? Well, um, I didn't want to quit. I'm not a quitter. People in the Senate district sent me down for one term. I'm going to stay there. More important than that is we have to pass a carbon bill in the February session. And I'm committed to that. And, um, I'm, I'm part of the team that's going to meetings and, and trying to get a, a deal together so we can pass something without the Republicans walking out. And that is more important to me than uh, raising money. Uh, fundraising can take a back seat for a while until we get this other job that I was elected to work on done. When does your state Senate term start and finish? I'm out after uh, my this, this will be the final year of my term. So that does make it a more significant, and I will acknowledge I had a similar decision and I made the same decision you made, but it's a different thing. Like you're actually uh, giving up a month of fundraising is a significant uh, decision in this scope of the campaign. If you had two years more left in your state Senate term, well, people could view it as well. He's sort of hedging his bets. He wants to keep a Senate seat. He can run for secretary of state and stay in the state Senate, but that's not the case here. You are filling out your term at some potential cost. Any political consultants told you you're being a dumb, dumb. They told me I was a dumb, dumb. <laughs> yeah, um, I've, I've, uh, I'm up or out, uh, and I don't always take the advice of the the consultants. Um, as, as you know, these policy ideas. When I talk about cybersecurity, they kind of humor me and they say, "Well, okay, fine, you can do these things, but don't spend a lot of time on them." And so uh, we're trying to run. Uh, we call it the uncampaign. Uh, do things a little bit different. Like, God forbid, actually talk about policies and and ideas uh, instead of uh, 100% focus on money. Well, let's talk so, about a couple ideas then. You brought up ranked choice voting. How would you get yeah. that done and which method would you use? I know that Mark Fronmeyer and others been and Sarah Wolf slash Sarah Wolk yeah. has been pushing for star voting, essentially doing it like Yelp, where you give five stars or nine stars the candidate you like best, one or zero stars the candidate you like worst. Uh, there are others straight up just rank one to five. The concern that I have with ranked choice voting, and I tend to lean in favor of 
whatever that's worth. Uh, but my concern about it, the, or I should say the biggest counter argument I've seen to ranked choice voting is it complexifies the process and might promote a dip, might lead to a dip in voter participation. It looks like in San Francisco even, that might have even happened. How do you address that? And would you, well, in, and would you in supporting ranked choice, limit it to the primary, which I confess I strongly support, but not the general about which I have great doubts? Did you just comment on that too? Well, okay, first, back up a second. Um, ranked choice voting is just what it says. You you have three or four candidates you can uh, rank them as you vote instead of yes or no to one person you go one two three four and that has worked uh, in I think 50 different uh, local governments and entities around the country including the state of Maine which does it for its federal elections and it's worked well and this is not a, an, an innovative novel the idea this is um, not the flavor of the month Australia has been doing ranked choice voting for a hundred years and so uh, there is granted a little learning speed bump there. And I went through that. But once you get past that, you think like I did, I thought we should have been doing this 20 years ago. And what pulled me over um, was that it almost totally eliminates negative campaigning. I mean, anybody that sat through those TV ads and was subjected to that stuff and the last election knows how great that would be if we didn't have negative campaigns. and eliminates and that, negative campaigning because people don't want to be the least favored of, who, of the supporters who they go after. Right. You want you want to if you if you if you can't get uh, the the people voting for you in the first place, you want to get those second place votes of your opponent. So you're not going to trash out your opponents. Plus, you're going to do more outreach beyond your base. You don't need to just go to your 30 percent base. You you have to you have to go to everybody. And that results in more positive campaigns, more outreach campaigns, and it also results in nobody's a spoiler anymore. And it's not the lesser of two evils. So I really like that component. I have talked to Mark Frohnmeyer and Sarah, and they were really smart people about star voting. And it's in, I want to say, kind of a variation of ranked choice voting, but yeah. either one is a huge improvement over our kind of winner-take-all approach now. Uh, of all places, Benton County, the voters in Benton County yep. adopted ranked choice voting in 2016, and this will be their first election cycle where they're going to implement ranked choice voting. They're going to do it this year. And so it'll be interesting to see how, how they do. Um, and you as, don't think it causes a dip. You don't think it reduces voter turnout. Or if you do, you think that's just a blip until we've gotten to learn it and probably doesn't take 100 years to learn it. Well, I, it hasn't reduced voter turnout in other places. In fact, it's, it's had uh, just the opposite effect. Um, you know, it may be, it feels a little bit like when I was a young guy, um, uh, I guess this was in the nineties as a reporter, uh, vote by mail was just starting and there were very skeptical people because, oh no, the post office will lose the mail. That's what we're people mail in 10 ballots at a time. This will never work. But we gradually, uh, accepted it county by county, kind of did some local elections, experimented with it. It grew, and in 2001, uh, we adopted it as a statewide method of voting. And now, today, vote by mail is arguably the most popular thing that state government does. And you're not concerned that ranked really choice. You're not concerned that ranked choice voting would lead to more milk dose candidates, candidates who are so afraid of offending the supporters of another candidate that they wouldn't do enough to differentiate themselves, or push bold uh, enough or challenging I, enough ideas that actually went against the status quo. No, I don't. I mean, that just hasn't happened in the places that have, have done that, done this already. Maine, uh, San Francisco, 
Um, you know, it could, and uh, there's probably no method that's going to eliminate, you know, certain things, uh, behaviors and poor candidates, that sort of thing. But um, uh, I think it's it's a it's a conversation that the Secretary of State should lead, and maybe uh, uh, voters, you know, will will see it and say no thanks, or maybe it's too complex for average people to uh, get their hands around and brains around. Um, but I think it's 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 something we should try to get rid of this uh, negative campaigning that has dominated all of the statewide races in the last couple of election cycles. It just is not a dialogue. It's not a conversation. Nobody's talking about ideas or proposals. Nobody's having that civil yeah. debate. They're just saying, well, Kate Brown isn't telling the truth. Well, Newt Gowler's not telling the truth. I mean, that doesn't get any people tune those out. It's just a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I like it when when we see these Democratic candidates, uh, presidential candidates debating. Sometimes they're arguing. But when they're arguing, I like when they say, OK, we need Medicare for all. No, we need the Obama plan. You know, that's good. That's healthy. That's what we should be doing. I actually would have liked, Pop likes the idea of doing it in a primary, doesn't like the idea of doing it in a general. I actually would have liked to see it, even just at the DNC had done ranked choice voting to decide, ranked choice polling to decide which candidates were going to stay in the debates. So you then a Cory Booker and a Kamala Harris might outlast a Marianne Williamson or an Andrew Yang. The other one you said, though, was same-day voter registration. And I will again acknowledge I'm an enormous supporter of that. But for that, you've got to put that on the ballot. Legislature can't just do that. I mean, they could refer it to the ballot. What would be the plan to implement same-day voter registration? Yes, I would uh, I would lead the uh, effort to get the legislature to refer it to the ballot. Um, again, this isn't a, a novel idea. There's about 20 states who have done this uh, recently, and in each one of those states, voter participation has increased. And that's just really a, a nothing more than technology. Anybody that's ever bought anything on Amazon knows that you can do these document checks, security checks, ID checks instantaneously. And we don't need 21 days now. Maybe we did 35 years ago when people were mailing documents back and forth. Uh, but you can uh, register online currently. Uh, it's just that you don't we just don't need to uh, take 21 days and, and cut people off before the election, because what happens is this. This often hurts working people who are not paying attention to an election until a couple of weeks before the election. And then when they go to register, they're told you're too late. So I think that would be just a good government improvement for our state. In the background, but you're right. It would it would require a, a constitutional vote. Yeah, the background on here is when Norma Paulus was Secretary of State and the Rajneeshis, uh, was it Elk? Uh, was that the town, Elk, Oregon? When the Rajneeshis uh, went uh, in. Wrong, and, wrong mammal, a- antelope. Antelope, okay, forgive me. <laughs> you had the, bison? You knew it was an animal of some kind. <laughs> with <Bovine. horns. laughs> uh, Unicorn. When, uh, when the Rajneeshis packed the ballots, all registered quickly, and then uh, ended up try, uh, using that to win elections. Neuropolis used that as a rationale to put into place the 21-day prior requirement for voter registration, which ends up being somewhat absurd for people who are just starting, particularly young people, who start paying attention to the election towards the end of the election, and oops, now it's a little bit too late. But what is the uh, what is the magnitude of that problem now? What's the delta on voter participation we might see in Oregon now that we have automatic voter registration? Who are the folks who are left out in those last 21 days? Well, uh, I don't know if there's empirical evidence on this, but um, the, the conventional thinking is they're working people, people that are just not 
tuned in that don't think about elections like we do uh, 24-7. They, they just start paying attention, you know, two or three weeks beforehand. And so if they've moved or uh, had a change of address, they go to uh, register and they find out they're, they're closed out because of the 21-day cutoff. What's the path to victory here? I think that I, I still want to ask Jay McLeod Skinner her path to victory. I think I understand Jennifer Williamson's path to victory. It is to be she was in leadership in the in the state house. She has been very much kind of a mainstream uh, Democrat. Not to say that you haven't been a mainstream Democrat, but it has seemed like there have been more times. Feel free to challenge this premise, but more times that you have wanted to reach beyond the Democratic Party qua party uh, in your policy making, your policy priorities, even in your voting record, uh, and that uh, her path to power, I think, is, you know, win, is a traditional Democrat's path to power, win labor endorsements, win feminist endorsements, uh, maybe environmental endorsements, and then get that and then raise a bunch of money and win the nomination. Is your path at all different from hers? Well, you know, when you look at the accomplishments that I've talked about, uh, free community college for Oregon high school graduates feels like a pretty progressive democratic idea. The Student Success Act, which raised uh, taxes on corporations, cut income taxes for the lowest brackets on Oregonians, and put the proceeds into schools, that feels like a pretty progressive democratic idea. So I'm not one into labels, uh, um, but I, I think um, I'm a Democrat because of the principles and the values that the Democrats stand for. And part of my M.O. in operating down there and the reason I think I've been able to pass a lot of big bills is because I do talk to people. I get along with people. This was a business tax last year, but I had businesses in my office every single day. And I didn't demonize them. I didn't uh, uh, criticize them. Uh, I worked with them because essentially they said, OK, we know we're going to have to pay this modest tax here. We just can you work with us to get the technical language right so we can make this work? And I did. We had bankers in almost every week because we needed to get the technical language right. They're still going to pay the tax, but their operations are different. If you make a $10,000 deposit in the bank, well, that's not a $10,000 sale that you should pay a tax on. So, you know, we needed uh, we needed to make sure their, the language worked for them. Car dealers wanted language that said, the devil made us do it on this tax. And you know what? I said, that's fine. They're still going to pay it. The money's still going to come in. And if that's what we do to establish goodwill, then that's what we're going to do. And guess what happened? Under our referendum law, where uh, everybody assumed this bill was going to be referred to the ballot, it didn't. And that didn't happen by accident. It's because we convinced business to stand down and not fight this bill. And had they referred this to the ballot, the election would have been last week. So let that sink in for a second, guys. We would have had this divisive ballot measure. And you think that one of the reasons that didn't happen was not just because there was a greater show of strength by the people who would have passed it, but because of work that folks did, and I think you're saying work that you did, to make sure that some of the potential opponents were actually heard and some of their stuff was actually included. I, I know that's true. I know that's true. And that was very important to me, and I savored that all through the holidays because I know had there been a ballot measure coming up, we would have been subjected to those beautiful political ads over the holiday season, and none of that happened. The law is in effect. The tax started January 1st, and we're all going to go forward with this, uh, trying to get our schools back in the shape to the places where they were when uh, you were growing up in, 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 in these schools, uh, Jefferson. And, and so uh, 
you're right. I do talk to people. I talk to Republicans. I talk to labor folks. I talk to business guys. And I'm respectful. And I think that has served me well in getting bills passed through the legislature. I think that will serve me well in the future. Um, I know how that capital works. I know how to get things through. And, you know, it seems pretty standard, but I think being respectful to others, working with people is is kind of the way you do it. There are at least two things we got to get to. We only have a few more minutes. One is the land board and the other is money in politics. We had a text come in from a listener who wanted to say thank you for your support on land use legislation. Anything that differentiates you from Jamie McLeod Skinner, Jennifer Williamson, in your seat on the state land board? And for folks who are new to this stuff and on ramp state land board, the secretary of state is one of the members of that. And they make decisions with what happens with state lands. And some of that stuff, like with Elliott Forrest, ends up being pretty significant. Any any way that you think you should be trusted more than them on the state land board? And it's important for people to understand that there are three people on that board and your vote is just as important as the governor's. Well, I think the one thing that's missing from the land board is a guideline, uh, a North Star on what to do with assets in the common school fund. What should that North Star be? Well, I think there should be a a process, a public process to say, okay, um, we value these assets on these principles. They should create jobs or they should be there for recreation or they should just be there for the scenery uh, because most endowments i've served on foundations uh when you have an asset that's not performing you dump it the ibm stock hasn't been uh, doing well so we'll dump it we'll buy something else a shopping mall isn't working anymore so we'll sell it um but in the land board when your assets are not that liquid and they include properties um sometimes these decisions uh just come up and all of a sudden everybody's paralyzed because they don't know what to do and that's what happened with the elliot the land board uh, doesn't have a process to say, well, um, this is an heirloom property. It's, it's a treasure, so we can't sell it. Or it's not a treasure, so we can sell it. Just a month ago, the land board voted to sell 300 acres over in Bend. So uh, it could be developed and, and subdivisions built on it. And that was like a no-brainer. There was no controversy um, because the facts just kind of suggested that would be a smart thing to do. But there was there was no guiding principles there. There was no sort of constitution. It just uh, seemed like something that that should be done. When they got to the Elliott Forest, nobody knew what to do because nobody knew whether that's, uh, you know, educators argued that you should sell it because this is actually a, a fund that that throws off money to schools. And so, therefore, if you don't sell it, um, um, you're going to be shortchanging kids. Um, and, of course, Enviro said, uh, no, you can't sell the Elliott Forest. So nobody knew what to do. And in the end, we ended up with kind of a, uh, a plan that only politicians could dream up, with is, which is the state is going to sell the Elliott to itself uh, for about, I don't know, a third of the money that was, that was first talked about. And um, some of the rules on how that's going to work with Oregon State University Forestry School – um, some of those rules haven't even been figured out yet. And, you know, if it would have been me, I would have said, no, let's just not sell it, period. And, uh, but anyway, that. No, but I'd say, I want to say, I want to say, there's a nerdy response, but having a clarified set of criteria, a set of principles upon which the land board operates, uh, that's one of the most sensible answers I've yet. That is the most sensible land board answer I have yet to hear, obviously. 
it could any someone could say it and it could be a dodge. The, who knows what those criteria might be? But I want to get to money in politics. How much do you think this race is going to cost you? Uh, I know that reaching the whole state is a big deal, and Secretary of State is not as high profile a race as governor, to be clear, or U.S. Senate, but really not even Congress or mayor. There's not as many people who pay attention to what's happening in Secretary of State's race. And in order to get their attention, very often you got to buy it. What's this race going to cost? How are you going to get the money? Well, I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I can give you a, a number. I don't know that that's, uh, I, you know, we're in a new era now of uh, different campaigning. Everybody's using social media, and I think uh, there's certain things you can't put a value on. I mean, we're just scrapping. We're just going out and meeting people. Oh, there's going to be eight people at this place. Good, we'll go over there and shake hands. There's going to be 10 people here. Okay, we'll go there too. I'm having eggs and issues breakfasts every single Saturday morning at a different place. And every time we do that, we have 15 people show up and we hand them a yard sign and it's a good discussion. We talk about ranked choice voting. So I think it's a lot of that old school stuff. And I wish there was some secret way or some uh, genius uh, consultant to say, here's here's how you win um, in, a, in an easy way. You don't have to spend much money. You don't have to drive through every uh, corner of the state. But that doesn't exist. And I know the other candidates are working hard. Uh, last month, we decided Curry County Democrats are having a meeting, and, and we thought we should go down there. Yes, Curry County. There are some Democrats down there. And uh, I said, man, that's a long ways to go. And uh, the guy that's working with me said, yeah, but you'll be the only one down there. They'll look good. We'll take pictures. Um, so we drive down there, and it's six hours. And we get there, and there's Jamie. She's, she's there, too. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of how I think all the candidates are scrapping for votes here and there. And that's that's what I'm doing. Uh, money will be a part of it. But uh, this is a this is a primary with uh, four good candidates and uh, everybody's working hard. And uh, I think it's just a little bit old school. What should the campaign contribution limits be in Oregon if the referred initiative passes? or the initial referral passes, the legislature can have to make that decision unless there's another ballot measure to impose limits. What should those limits be? I think I think they should be reasonable. I'm not married to a number. Um, earlier in the campaign, a couple, Jamie and I tried to get all of the candidates to agree to a, a campaign finance limits, and we agreed that limit would be $500 for individuals, 1000 from organizations across the board. And so, but Jennifer wouldn't go along with that. So we, you have to have everybody in. So did she give her rationale to you? No, you'd have to ask her about that. I did. Uh, and we'll, we'll be publishing all of these so people can go listen to each of them. I had a good conversation yeah. with uh, former Representative Williamson. Should the mayor, should Mayor Ted Wheeler have abided? 87%, a little over 87% of Portlanders voted in favor of $500 limits in city council races. Uh, the uh, Right now, that is up to a court challenge because essentially the Scalia view of the uh, of money in politics is somehow been in, has infected the Oregon Constitution. Do you think that the Portland mayor should have abided by, when he was running for re-election, should have abided by those city limits? Jefferson, you want me to get into uh, Portland city politics? No, I want you. I think that's a legit question because, as Secretary of State, you might even have to rule on whether something, whether when a city uh, is uh, when a city imposes a limit, and there's a question about the enforcement of that limit. The view of the Secretary of State seems relevant. Uh, 
I think he should have followed the rules that exist. Um, I, I know we have this big, uh, important ballot measure in, in November that will change the Constitution to allow limits to be set so they can't be thrown out by the courts every every couple of years. I was the chief sponsor of that referral measure, so I, I feel very strongly about this. The first bill on the first day of my first term that I ever introduced was this bill, campaign finance reform. So uh, you've got to follow the rules, but if there are no rules, then I think you have to do what you can to do to be competitive. Well, I had an election four years ago uh, against a guy who spent $500,000 of his own money. And so I could have folded my yeah, my hands and said, no, I'm, I'm not going to take corporate money. I'm only going to take $100, sure. no more than $100 contributions or whatever. Uh, and I wouldn't have won. I would have lost. Sure, but the mayor, but I don't think the mayor's problem is going to be money. I think the mayor will have the biggest name recognition. I think the mayor would have been able to, uh, would have been able to raise the money, which is one of the reasons I think it's interesting. But it is, in fact, deciding on what the rules are that I find interesting, right? If the city passes it, but then a court rules that on the county case, not on the city case, that the county rules aren't to be enforced, then how do you lead, right? For instance, would if there had been a state initiative passed, right? Well, anyway, you've you've given your answer, and I appreciate it. I know you've already been really generous with your time. Anything I should have asked you that oh, I didn't? Wait, 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 wait! You can't ask that question yet because I got a question I got to ask. <laughs> the King County Conservation District consists of everybody in King County, approximately almost everybody, approximately one point two million voters. They in their last election, thirty-five hundred people voted out of that one point two million. The reason being that the conservation district has a budget of about seven million bucks, and if they mailed a ballot to every one of the voters, they would be eating up fifteen percent of their entire budget. So this year, starting today, you can vote online. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Do you think that's a, a trend? Do you think that's something that should be limited to a jurisdiction that has a problem like King County? Or, or is that where we're going to go? I, I think it's a bad idea. Uh, all of the cybersecurity experts in the country uh, are saying, no, don't do it. We don't have the technology. It sounds like it would be cool and convenient to be able to vote on your smartphone. But... Uh, with the meddling, the technology that's going on now, I just uh, I wouldn't do it at all. In fact, you know, of all places uh, up in Washington, Jeff Bezos had his smartphone hacked by the Saudis. So I don't think it's safe for elections. And it may be a technology out in the future, but uh, we're not ready to go there now. And I'm hoping in your answer to Jeff's question that he just made, in which he will now repeat, really want to hear your answer to that. Because of your journalistic background, you may really be able to help us in the questions we ask. Any question I should have asked you that I didn't? (laughs) Probably, but but, uh, I appreciate the discussion. Senator Mark Cass, candidate for Secretary of State, primary coming up soon, filing deadline in March, general election if there, if Mark Cass is to win that primary, well, whomever wins that primary, will be in November. Senator, thank you so much for your service to the state, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, guys.